We are in Ecclesiastes. This is the final sermon in Ecclesiastes. You guys may give an amen to that if you would like. Um, but as we begin, let's, let's stand as we read God's Word together. The Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verses 9 through 14. This is God's Word. Besides being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. The preacher sought to find words of delight, and upright he wrote words of truth. The words of the wise are like goads, and like, like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. They are given by one shepherd. My son, beware of anything beyond these. Of making many books there is no end, and much study is weariness of the flesh. The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God, keep His commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. This is the word of the Lord. As we have said very many times, Ben has said numerous times that Herman Melville said that Ecclesiastes is the truest of all books. In the tale of Moby Dick, it is referred to as a fine hammered steel of woe. And all of you might say amen to that as well. Tom Wolfe, the great American writer, says it's the highest flower of poetry and eloquence and truth. We may liken the preacher Solomon to William Barrett Travis, the legendary comp commander who drew the line in the sand at the Battle of the Alamo. He told every man there, if you step over this line, it's not you might die, but you will die. And so the preacher in Ecclesiastes is a straight shooter. There's no fine print. There's no bait and switch. He's just full of honesty. He's full of truth. He's full of transparency about life under the sun. Kids should be dismissed for children's church at this time. Ben <laughs> uh, and I are good about forgetting that. Thanks, Ben, for standing up. We'll give the kids time to make their way out. So as we've been on this journey in search of the meaning of life, we've said many times that the preacher has taken us to every nook, to every cranny. He's shown us the bottom of every well that could possibly be on planet Earth. He's encouraged us to swim in every brook He's encouraged us to sample every buffet that the world has to offer. In one sense, the preacher has sort of called the world's bluff on what it means to have life. In some sense, the preacher has taken us into the Playboy Mansion, as he himself says he had a thousand concubines. He's taken us into the home of the rich tycoon, as we know that Solomon was one of the wealthiest men to ever live. 
He's taken us into the libraries of scholars and philosophers as he himself was the wisest man on planet earth that has ever been. He's brought us into the trophy rooms of the most prominent people in the world, the most accomplished people on planet earth. And he says, see if you can find life there. See if you can find contentment there. See if you can find joy there. His most famous saying in this book is vanity of vanities. He begins his book that way and he ends his book that way. He does not do that, like we have said earlier, to discourage us. He does not do that to make us depressed. He is not a killjoy. He is not a cynic. But the preacher is a sage. He's a wise man. And his desire is to save His desire is to rescue. His desire is to awaken you to the lullaby and to the notes that this world often plays that lure us to sleep. And it's to the sleep of death where there is no hope of resurrection. So the preacher, he's not a naive hermit, okay? He Himself has conquered every peak in the world. There is none that He has not conquered. He has been a king. He has been a poet. He has been a sage. He has been a rich man. He has been a ladies' man. He has done great things for God. And He has also done great things for humanity. And yet He says, all is vanity. All is vanity. Verse 9, as we get into the passage, says, besides being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. And so the preacher, his goal throughout the book of Ecclesiastes is to bring a logical clarity to us. He's trying to help us see and hear clearly. He's trying to help us think critically about life. He's trying to get us to ask the hard questions about what really matters in life under the sun. He's trying to get you to live with your eyes open to test, to ponder, to examine. His primary goal is He seeks to persuade and win us to the path of life. That's what He wants. He wants to win us to the path of life. Verse 11 says this, the words of the wise are like goads and like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. His words are meant to goad and to prod us to the place of rest for our souls. As one author says, Ecclesiastes is like an axe for the frozen sea, hoping to break up the iciness of our own hearts. The preacher is trying to move us to a solid foundation. He's trying to move us to a solid hope. A foundation where neither time, nor suffering, nor hardships, nor failures, and even death cannot erode or take it from you. The preacher is trying to provide an anchor for the soul. That's where he wants to take us. This message... This truth was not born in modernity. It was not born from the preacher's own mind. This is a message 
from the great shepherd himself. This is a message from Jesus Christ himself. It says, they're like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings, and they're given by one shepherd. And that is a reference to, to the great shepherd to the one who is God of very God and light of very light. And the preacher wants you to understand that this message that he has for us is trustworthy. It's solid. It's steadfast. It's not smoke and mirrors. It's not bait and switch. In verse 12, listen to what he says. He says, My son, beware of anything beyond these. Of making many books there is no end, and much study is a weariness of the flesh. My son, beware of anything beyond this. There's a lot out there. There's a lot of windows to look through. There's a lot of talking in circles. A million books a year are published nowadays. There's no end to all the things out there saying this is where life is found. This is where hope is found. And the preacher is saying no, only in the great shepherd is there life, is there resurrection hope. So the preacher has brought us to this final turn. He's brought us to the end of the road, sort of the 18th hole. And Derek Kidner says the reason that he has brought us here is because nothing in our search has led us home. Think about that. <laughs> in all that the preacher has done, in all the different paths he has brought us, even in the paths that you've traveled in your own life, it says nothing in our search has brought us home. Nothing in our search has brought us satisfaction and joy and contentment. The preacher says this, this is the end of the matter. There's nothing else left to say. This is what you need for true life. This is what you need to live life under the sun and be full of joy. The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God. Keep His commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. Did you think that was what was going to be his answer at the end of Ecclesiastes? Right? In our world today, we thought sure it would be the God of love. Right? Or the God of compassion or the God of forgiveness. But he says, fear God. Keep His commandments. This is the whole duty of man. This is what life is all about. There won't be many books written on that topic, I can assure you. In the great divorce, C.S. Lewis describes a man from the suburbs of hell who spent his whole life seeking truth, or so he says. And the man wanders near the borders of heaven, where by the gracious invitation of God he is invited to enter in. But the Spirit warns him, I can promise you no atmosphere of inquiry, for I will bring you to the land not of questions, but of answers, and you will see the face of God." And the man said, not quite ready yet. I'm still on my quest. 
And so what the preacher is saying is, I have brought you to the end of the road, and this is what life is about. Fear of God. 2 Timothy 3.7 says, there are those who are always learning, but never coming to a knowledge of the truth. Michael Eaton summarizes the fear of God is not only the beginning of wisdom, it is also the beginning of joy, the contentment of an energetic and purposeful life. The preacher wishes to deliver us from the rosy-colored, self-confident, godless life with cynicism, bitterness, from trusting in wisdom, from trusting in pleasure, from trusting in wealth, from trusting in human justice or integrity, He wishes to drive us to see that God is there and that He is good and that He is generous and that only such an outlook makes for a coherent and fulfilling life. So the preacher teaches us that it's the fear of God. It's the fear of God, not the love of God, that best helps us understand what it means to live life what it means to navigate life under the sun, what it means to enjoy life. John Donne, the quote was up here earlier, give me, O Lord, a fear of which I may not be afraid. He died of the black plague. You see, it's the fear of God that consumes all other fears in our life. See, we all are going to fear something in this world. You're either going to fear man, you're going to fear failure, you're going to feel broken, fear broken relationships. You're going to fear lots of things. Or you can fear the good and gracious and compassionate God who consumes all of our fears. But one of the things that I want you to understand is this fear of the Lord is not a slavish fear. It's not a fear where we are shamed. It's not a fear where we shrink in cowardliness or fear of punishment. That's not what I'm talking about. It's a childlike fear. A fear of reverence. A fear of awe that causes us to cry out, God save me. It can be characterized, as one author put it, as awe and dread and veneration and wonder all mixed together. It's like being stuck on the cliff of the Grand Canyon and you're overlooking the Grand Canyon and this cliff is only a couple of feet wide and you're just standing there. There's this awe as you look out over it. But there's this fear, right? That if I move too far, it will destroy me. And so there's these mixed feelings. And once you come to realize that the little platform that you're standing on is solid and it's not going to give way, you're able to enjoy the beauty and the wonder and the majesty and the greatness and the awe of what is displayed. It's like Aslan in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, right? He's this lion, and he is feared. He is good. The term for the fear of the Lord is probably best understood by talking about our posture before God. What is your posture before God? What, 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 in what way do you come to God? It's more about knowing your place 
in the presence of a holy God, being aware of, of your frailty, being aware of your finite being in His presence. After God answers Job out of the whirlwind, if you remember the book of Job, after He finally answers Job, this is what Job says in Job 40, verse 4. Job's friends have had all these questions. Job's have all these questions about why he's suffering. And God finally speaks out of the whirlwind. Job's response is this, I will put my hand over my mouth and say no more. So the preacher is trying to help us understand that the fear of the Lord is a posture before God. It's a posture before the God of the universe that acknowledges that I am frail, that I am human, that I am finite, and I am unable to sustain myself. Right? It's the posture that says I am chronically discontent, that my well is always dry and I cannot keep it full, that in and of myself I am incapable of finding satisfaction. It's a posture that, as Immanuel Kant says, all humanity is crooked timber. There are no straight people in the world. There are no people in the world that are not without sin. Like, do we come to the Lord in that kind of posture? Do we come to the Lord frail and finite, understanding we have no hope outside of His grace? Do we come to the Lord understanding and acknowledging that we are chronically chronically discontent with life and we are unable to fill our well because it is always draining out and it is always going dry and we're continually running after idol, after idol, after idol. Do we understand that we all are crooked timber? That there are no straight boards in the world? Do we come before God like that? Or do we come before God as though He needs us? as though He gains benefit from my life. You know, there's nothing in life under the sun that helps you cultivate that. Did you know that? There's nothing in this world that's going to help and encourage you to cultivate that. Hopefully the people in our church, hopefully the body of Christ, right? In our world, we are all God. We are all autonomous. We're like Snow White's evil grandmother, right? Or stepmother. In our rooms with our mirror, mirror on the wall, who's the greatest of us all? That's our culture. That's where we live and breathe and sleep. Right? Listen to this. Those who are always hurrying, busy bees, trying to keep the treadmill going, have little fear of God. Man, that's convicting, isn't it? That's convicting for the preacher. Busy, hurrying, treadmilling it, trying to keep it going. You have no fear of God if that's how you live life. The Scriptures say, be still and know that I am God. The fear of God is a posture that is shaped by words that often, as one pastor says, we like to separate. Words like love and fear that we try to separate, that we think don't go together, but the Bible keeps them together. Words like justice and mercy 
that we try to separate, but Jesus keeps those things together. Words like grace, God's grace, and God's anger. We try to divide those things, and Jesus says, no, those things go together. Tim Keller says this, if you don't have a God of anger and a God of grace, then you will distort your life. You see, in one sense, we're made in the image of God, right? Great worth. In the other sense, we are broken and fragile people in great need. You see, in order to live life under the sun, we can't separate things that the Scriptures don't separate. See, if you're a person who just believes in a God of love, if you're, if you're the person that just is like, I just don't believe in anger and this overtalk of wrath and injustice and these boundaries and commands. And you'll be like a child who is raised with no boundaries. Following the cravings and the impulses and the feelings of their own desire, their worldview will be that life is all about them. Full of entitlement, incredible distortions about life. There is no quicker way or certain way to destroy a child than to not put boundaries in his world. Listen to that. There is no quicker or certain way to destroy a child than to place no boundaries in their world. Think about that. If you just think about it logically, if there is no boundaries in your sex life, what will happen to sex in your world? It will destroy you. If there are no boundaries in your work life and you are a workaholic, it will destroy you. You must have boundaries. We all must have boundaries. Without boundaries, it's just destruction. Rankin Milborn says, if you don't have a God who contradicts you, who crosses your will, who tells you when you are wrong, who can say no to your deepest desires and contradict your deepest feelings and longings, then you don't have a God because you yourself are God. But there's another side to the coin. If you just believe in this God who is only angry all the time, who has these endless rules and no forgiveness, then the weight and the guilt of despair of knowing you can never rest because you can never attain will crush you to powder. Desperately driven, longing for affirmation, rise to the top by the sweat of your brow and the callousness of your hands. Do you know each of us in here are one of these two people? Like, do you realize that? That we, that we all lean one way or the other. Either you're this loving, love, love God's just this God of love with no boundaries, or you're this person who thinks you can get it done, that you can earn it. But if you're the only angry God, then really there's nothing but despair, right? Because we all know we can't get it done. The preacher behind the pulpit knows he can't get it done. I can't even keep the Ten Commandments, much less all the others. You see, church, the God of the Bible is what we need. The God of the Bible is what our world needs. The God of the Bible is what our neighborhoods need. The God of the Bible is what our children need. 
He's just. He's merciful. He's angry, but He's gracious. He's full of love, and yet He's to be feared. You see, we don't serve the God of the Greeks, the gods of the world that can be appeased through our sacrifice, through our sweat, through our tears. We serve the God who is three times holy. Holy, holy, holy. Who sets a standard so high that He knows you can't reach it. And then He sends His Son who meets the standard for you. Who achieves it on your behalf. Who pours out His blood for your sake. And then accredits to you His righteousness. Listen at Psalms 34, 1-11. Listen as we read through this. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Not in me, but in the Lord. Do you see the posture there? Let the humble hear and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt His name together. I sought the Lord and He answered me and He delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to Him are radiant. Those who have the posture to look away from themselves for salvation and look to Him are radiant. And their faces shall never be shamed. Right? There will never be a day where you're in slavish fear to the Lord. He always covers your shame. This poor man cried, and the Lord heard him. You see that? This poor man, this man who was broken, cried out, and the Lord heard him. And He saved him out of all of his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear Him. God's angels encamp around those who have a posture, who fear the Lord, who are in awe of Him, and He delivers them. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in Him. Oh, fear the Lord, you His saints, for those who fear Him lack nothing. Listen at this. The young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. At some point in your life, maybe even now, you have been a, a young lion. You know what a young lion is? A young lion is someone who thinks they can get it done on their own. A young lion, what does a young lion do? He thinks he can provide for himself. He thinks he can beat anybody. He thinks he can accomplish everything. And it says, Oh, fear the Lord, you His saints, for those who fear Him lack nothing. But the young lions, those who think they can accomplish things on their own, the young lions who think they can save themselves, the young lions who think they have life in a bag, they suffer want and hunger. But those who seek the Lord lack nothing. Come, O children, listen to Me, and I will teach you the fear of the Lord. You see, church, what we need is we need a reverent, fearful posture before God that acknowledges you are God and we are not. You are holy and we are not. We are crooked timber and you are not. And yet we have to remember 
that we are far more loved than we could ever imagine. Right? That we are crooked timber. That we are chronically discontent. That we have no hope save the mercy of God. And He looks at us. And with the deepest love and the deepest compassion shown to us in Christ, He said, I know you, but I love you. We must arrange our lives around certain practices. But we arrange our lives around those practices not to earn God's smile, but to keep before us and to keep before our children who God is and what He's done for us so that awe and gratitude will fill our souls and flow from our lives. So we must set practices before us like reading our Bibles, like coming to church, like praying with our children. Not to earn God's love, but because we forget God's love. Not not to earn salvation, but so that we remember where salvation comes from. So set those practices in place so that you might know the fear of the Lord. Our posture before God. We are frail. We are finite. We are chronically discontent. All of humanity is broken. And yet God has seen us He has seen us in our sins. He has seen us in our trespasses. And He has seen us in our despair. And He has come. And He has become one of us. He has died upon the cross and He has risen from the grave. And He has brought life. Should we not stand in awe of such a God? Should we not stand in reverence and humility by such a God that would share His glory with His creatures knowing that they would try to rob Him of His glory. Think about that. That He would share His beauty and His glory and His majesty with us as humans. We're the only ones made in the image of God. He shared His beauty knowing that we would try to rob Him and take Him of it. Instead of casting us headlong into hell, He becomes one of us lives the life that we should have lived, clothes us in His righteousness by His sacrifice. Let's pray together. Lord, the fear of the Lord is not a very popular topic in our world. And if we're all honest, in some ways it probably makes us uneasy, and maybe it should, Lord, because You are that great and that awesome and that amazing. There ought to be an awe and a dread and a trembling. God, when we mention Your name, it ought to cause our jaw to drop as we think about Your love and Your grace and Your anger and Your justice and Your mercy and Your compassion. Lord, I pray that our church would know the fear of the Lord. I pray that our children would know the fear of the Lord. I pray that our neighborhoods and our city and our state and our country and our world would know the fear of the Lord. Because when the Lord is on His throne, all 
will be right. When the Lord comes and makes things new, God, that is what we need, is to know the fear of the Lord. So Lord, would Your Spirit, God, by Your Word, would You help us cultivate that posture in our lives that instead of being these young lions who try to do things by our own strength and by our own might, would we humble ourselves under Your mighty hand that You might lift us up in due time? We come to You in prayer. We come to You in weakness and trembling, knowing that when we are weak, then we are strong. God, would You do this? We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.